Turn, if you would, back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. And we will finish out this chapter tonight with the help of the Lord, beginning at verse number 14. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, beginning at verse 14. These are the words of God. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will. And will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? As we approach this text, we come to the end of the first major section of this epistle. This section began all the way back in verse 10 of chapter 1. And for nearly three chapters, Paul has been combating the worldly wisdom that seeped into the ministry of the Corinthian church. And he has been laying out for us how it is that God dispenses His grace through the ministry of the gospel. We have learned much about the dangers of worldly wisdom and how the message of humanism stands in stark contradiction to the message of the cross. We have also seen the types of men that God uses to advance His redemptive purposes and how it is that God ordains these men and employs these men in the context of the local church. We learn that God does not call the mighty and the noble and those highly esteemed in the world, but rather God is pleased to use the weak and the feeble and those of no account that He might receive all the honor and all the glory. And as we have considered the simplicity and the power of the gospel's message We understand that it is a message that does not rely on human innovation, nor on the oratory abilities of its deliverer, nor on the external attractions for the accomplishments of its purposes. I have found personally that if I am able, by my own wisdom and intellect, to talk you into believing something, there is someone who will come along that is much more skilled than I am, that is a much better speaker than I am, who will talk you right out of it. No, but God's converts are convinced by God alone. The gospel is a message that relies solely upon the power of God, and it may only be received through the illumination of the Spirit of God. It is as if Paul has spent the opening chapters calling the Corinthians back to their first lesson of Christianity 101. See, unlike other churches in the New Testament, the sin of the Corinthians was not perverting the gospel. It was not, as the Galatians, mixing grace and works. It was not, as the Romans, the misunderstanding of the imputation of God's righteousness. 
No, the sin in Corinth was thinking that they had graduated from the gospel. They thought that the gospel was merely just a message they needed to begin the Christian life, and that once they believed it, they had no further need of it. They were kind of like the individual that when you when you begin to ask them if they know the Lord, and you begin to witness to them, they say something to you like, Oh no, I'm fine. I, I've done that already. I, I've believed that already. I, I'm okay. I, I don't need to hear this message again. But friend, if that is your understanding of the gospel, you have no understanding of the gospel. The rest of this epistle is just a laundry list of the various problems that develop in a church when the members attempt to live their Christian lives based on the philosophies around them rather than the all-encompassing message of the gospel. It is not just the gospel that places you into the faith. It is the gospel that keeps you in the faith and grows you in the faith and brings your faith to fruition when it is made sight. It's not as if the gospel is kind of like the secret passcode that we tell the man at the door to get in, but once we're in, we we read of 12-step plans and we read of seeker-sensitive methodologies that will somehow increase our spirituality. No, no. God has designed the ministry of grace so that it is gospel, gospel, gospel from beginning to end. They did not understand the full scope of the gospel. They viewed the gospel and they viewed gospel preachers as merely the things that got them started, but not something that is to be a mainstay in their lives. And what they must understand and what we must understand is that we are not to go beyond the gospel, but we are to go deeper down into the gospel. As we develop in the Christian life, we should not be moving from place to place, but our roots should be firmly growing and deeper and deeper into the gospel. And it is the gospel that should completely shape and transform our lives and characterize everything we do and believe as Christians. Understand, I am not being reductionistic. I am not saying that we should not preach the full counsel of God. No, no, we should. Every word of it, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. I'm not saying that we should not teach systematic theology. No, we definitely should. We should understand the theology of God. We should understand theology proper. We should understand ecclesiology and eschatology and all of the other ologies that we like to study. But what I'm saying to you is that everything we believe must be saturated in and characterized by the gospel. Because if we try to understand doctrine and theology apart from the gospel, we will come to no understanding at all. We cannot separate a study of the church from the gospel. We cannot separate a study of the end times from the gospel. We cannot uh, separate a study of the Bible from the gospel. Because it is the gospel that births us into the faith, that gives us spiritual eyes, that gives us ears, that gives us an understanding whereby we may understand and perceive all of these other things. And as Paul has endeavored to explain these things, he has taught the Corinthians with symbols and metaphors. He has used personal anecdotes. He has used straightforward and plain language. He has even used, as we saw last week in the previous section, biting sarcasm. Paul has even been a bit facetious, as it were, to get this truth across because they were very thick-skulled. But 
Don't pat yourself on the back too quickly because you are very thick-skulled. And so as he concludes this first section, Paul will speak with the endearing words of a loving father who is profoundly concerned for the well-being of his children. If I were going to give you a title tonight, it would be a father in the gospel. A father in the gospel. That is how Paul will now present himself to the Corinthians. When a father is dealing with his troubled children, at times he will weep tears of meek compassion, and at times he will boldly declare of his own authority. But all of this, every, every part of this spectrum, comes from a love for his children and a desire to see them return to the truth. Paul is not being hard for the sake of being hard. Paul has said some very sharp things, no doubt, to the Corinthians, and at times he's been very transparent, he's been very direct. It might seem harsh to us. I could go down a rabbit trail of just how thin-skinned we are in 2022. We, we cannot take convicting preaching any longer. We cannot take uh, a man who gets up and expounds the Scriptures and hits on the live nerves of our own besetting sins. We don't like that kind of preaching. We would rather have someone that would tell us soft things and easy things. But as we look at the end of this chapter, there are four things that I want you to see that Paul will do as a loving father. Four things that he will present to the Corinthians. He will present a compassionate caution. He will give a consequential charge. He will speak of a certain coming, and He will end with a concluding choice. That's where we're heading in this text tonight as we finish out chapter 4. These are four things that Paul discusses with the Corinthians as their loving Father in the Gospel. So firstly, beginning at verse 14, a compassionate caution. Paul begins by saying, I write not these things to shame you. I write not these things to shame you. And it's very important that Paul begins as he does. These things refer to the things that Paul has just said in the previous verses. When he was deriding the Corinthians because of their pride. When he was, as it were, mocking them for their haughty attitudes that they had about their own selves. And as he used language that dripped with sarcasm to compare the proud and arrogant opinions that the Corinthians had of themselves with the actual experience of the apostles. In that section, as Paul is, is deriding them for wrongly thinking so highly of himself, he, he has to come now to verse 14 and he has to explain to them that he did not speak to them in such a manner in order to shame them. His goal was not to demean. His goal was not to embarrass. His goal was not to humiliate the Corinthians. No, his goal was to use such language so he could grab them by the proverbial collar, gather their attention in order to warn them. So he says, I write not these things to shame you. And then notice how he addresses them. But as my beloved sons... 
beloved sons, and we understand this is not just speaking of the men in the church, but sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Mankind is used there to refer to, of course, men and women. My beloved sons, my beloved daughters. Again, he's using language that emphasizes his love toward the Corinthians and his relationship to them as a spiritual father. No father wants to unnecessarily hurt the feelings of his child. But the parents here tonight can attest that sometimes hurting the feelings of your children is an unfortunate necessity to expose their folly and drive across a point that they must understand. So he says, I I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. I warn you. And a warning presupposes that something is wrong. There is no warning when there is no present danger. And this phrase, to warn, is, we, we get the idea of it in our English translations, but it, it's a much more emphatic term than how we would usually think of a warning. It, it is a sharp, screaming admonition. It, it is as if uh, there is a man who is standing on the tracks as the train is on coming, and he is warning others who are standing a ways off of him, you must get off. You must get off. You are about to be run over. You are about to be destroyed. I am warning you of imminent danger. It carries with it the idea of Paul as he is seeing the trend in the Corinthian church. He is observing the influx of worldly wisdom. He is watching as all of these wicked ideologies begin to take root in the assembly. And he knows that these things will ultimately destroy the church unless immediate intervention occurs. Oftentimes, prosperity or seeming prosperity is one of the most dangerous places for a church to be. There is a good kind of growth. There is also a very bad kind of growth. And when you are in the midst of it, you are oftentimes oblivious to what is just around the corner. I think this is also true in our own personal lives. How many of you can attest that there was an instance in your life in which it just seemed like everything was going right? It just seemed like you were living the the best period of your life, but you were completely blinded to something that was coming right around the corner that you were unable to see because you were so caught up in the moment. That's what was going on in Corinth. They were having these Greek orators that were coming into the assembly. They were giving these marvelous speeches. Their numbers were growing. They were living it up. But Paul saw what was taking place in that assembly. And he understood that unless they immediately altered their course, that church would be destroyed from within. All the while, the Corinthians are oblivious to this fact. Paul understands something they don't in in keeping with the analogy of of this loving father. Parents, have you ever noticed a pattern of behavior in your children that you knew would be detrimental to their well-being? Perhaps the problem had not begun to fully manifest, but but you have lived longer than them. You, You have been around the block a few more times than they have, and you could see where they were heading. All the while, your children were completely blinded to the dangers of their own life. And and you had to do whatever it took to get the point across to them and, and make them aware of the direction they were going in. This is the vantage point of the Apostle Paul. This is where Paul is at. And as he is willing to come across as harsh 
and even hurt some feelings if it means that his spiritual children will be pulled from the flames of their own self-destruction. Paul goes on to defend his position in verse 15. He says, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, he's using a hyperbole. He is saying, Though you have countless and innumerable instructors. Now the word translated for instructor is elsewhere translated as schoolmaster. The most notable usage of this word is in Galatians 3 when Paul says that the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Now a schoolmaster in ancient Greece is very different than a schoolmaster today. A schoolmaster is not the one who does the actual teaching. It's not the principal but rather it was a slave position. It was one who served in the household and who was charged with overseeing the education of the master's children. Now these slaves were often unlearned and illiterate themselves. And their job was to watch and manage as the master's children would go to school and would receive lessons and then would, would receive uh, objects and homework, if you, if you want to use that terminology, and the slave would walk them to school and would stand behind them as they worked on their studies and would make sure that they were uh, attending to those studies. They would oftentimes use manipulating tactics. They would berate. They would threaten in order to secure the appliance of the children. And children, of course, need some type of motivation at times to accomplish the things that they are assigned with. That is how the law works as the law convicts us and drives us and pushes us to the freedom that is in Christ. But Paul says here, and it's quite interesting, that the Corinthians have an abundance of schoolmasters. The schoolmasters who introduced worldly wisdom to the church and who have beguiled them into humanistic philosophy and have removed them from the power of the gospel and are driving them and, and they are telling them that you know, success means worldly esteem. And success in the church and prosperity in the church means having a good reputation with the unbelieving world. You see, in our day, there are those who have latched on to the perversion of, of false teachers. And they think that they have discovered the hidden secrets of the Bible. They think that they have, have entered in into a superior form of Christianity. And they, they pity all of us who simply believe the age-old biblical truths that have been passed down from generation to generation. But what Paul is trying to help us to understand is that such people have not been elevated to a special status of maturity. No, they, they have fallen under the beguilement of a dumb schoolmaster who has led them into deception like little children. That's what Paul is saying here. When he says you have innumerable tens of thousands of instructors in Christ, you have so many worldly teachers and worldly philosophers in your assembly that are telling you all sorts of different things that you are beguiled and you are fooled and you are tricked and you don't know your right hand from your left hand. And again, this is a church that thinks they are so far advanced and so far removed from all of the other simple-minded Christians. So Paul says, For though you have 10,000 instructors, but, but notice this, in Christ 
Yet have ye not many fathers? You have an innumerable amount of instructors, but you only have one father. Paul came long before any of these worldly philosophers. And Paul had a deep and intimate relationship with the Corinthians that was matched by no one else. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. It's the language that Paul uses. What, what does that mean? What does it mean for Paul to be their father in Christ? Now we understand that the new birth, ye must be born again. That is a work of God. And we cannot muster it up and we cannot cause it to take place. But God bestows it upon whom He wills. We understand that. But when Paul says, I have begotten you through the gospel, Paul is simply saying that he was the means. He was the human instrument that God used to bring about their conversion. We understand, our God is a God of means. And though He is the ultimate sovereign over all things, He is pleased to use means to accomplish the things that He ordains. And in the ordinary means of God's grace, there are three agencies at work in the conversion of sinners. Now, put your listening ears on. I'm going to give these terms to you. They're very important that we understand this. If we don't understand the terms, at least we need to understand the concept. In the conversion of sinners, there are chiefly three agencies at work. Number one, there is the effective agency. The effective agency is the agency that actually supplies the efficacious power to convert sinners. So you ask the simple question, who does the saving? Well, that answer, of course, is the triune God. God the Father, Christ the Son, through the Spirit, He is the effective agency in the conversion of sinners. But there's also the instrumental agency. The instrumental agency. What is it that God uses in the conversion of sinners? We understand that to be chiefly the Word of God preached and the other ordinary means of grace. I understand that there have been those who were converted having never heard a gospel sermon. I understand there were those who were converted having never been witnessed to. The thief on the cross is a chief example. He's never opened a page of Holy Writ. But we also understand theologically that there is a difference between ordinary means, the ordinary way that God is pleased to do things throughout redemptive history, and special scenarios like the thief on the cross. And ordinarily, God is pleased to use His Word preached and taught to effect the salvation of sinners. And thirdly, there's the administrative agency. The administrative agency is the one who takes the instrumental agency and administers it. And that, of course, is the gospel preacher and the ministers that God calls to dispense the means of grace. So by saying that He birthed them in the gospel, Paul is saying that He is the man that God used to first preach the gospel of Christ unto them. This does not take away at all from the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not at all. It simply understands that God is often used, or pleased to use means in the conversion of His people. If, if this concept is a hang-up for you, then ask yourself some very simple questions. How do you think your spiritual life would be if you just decided you are not going to open your Bible for a solid month? 
Now, if you would say to me, well, at the end of that month, I would be a wreck. I would be miserable. I would be depressed. I would be famined. I would... Well, then you understand that God uses means to administer His grace to you. Ask yourself this. What would be the state of your spirituality if you decided, I'm not going to fellowship with any believers for a solid month. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to uh, talk with my Christian friends. I'm not going to listen to sermons online. I'm not going to do any of that. Well, if you would answer... I would be of all men most miserable because I desperately need that fellowship to to move me along in the Christian life, then you understand that God uses means to administer His grace to His people. So Paul says, I am the one that God used to administer His grace to you for the very first time. I am your father in the faith. Before Paul came to Corinth, no one knew anything of Christ. It's hard for us to imagine. Paul was the founding pastor of the Corinthian church. And he labored there for 18 months and he oversaw their development as a new church. And Paul poured his sweat, his blood, and his tears into the Corinthians long before these other instructors ever came along and perverted the church with worldly wisdom. And so Paul is calling them to remember the unique relationship he has with them and the special love he has for them. And as he warns, he does so as a compassionate father who cares deeply for the well-being of his children. But secondly, I want you to see, based upon this, based upon this compassionate caution, I want you to see a consequential charge. A consequential charge. We see it in verse 16. He says, wherefore. And anytime you see a wherefore or a therefore in the Bible, you need to look and see what it is therefore. And wherefore points back to the, the immediately preceding verses. He says, because I'm your father, because I'm warning you, wherefore I beseech you. Paul not only expresses his grave concern for them, but he now also advises them of what they must do to avoid destruction. You're going to destroy yourselves with this worldly wisdom. You're going to ruin yourself with your misunderstanding of the gospel and the means of grace. Wherefore, I beseech you, in order to fix this, be ye followers of me. Be ye followers of me. We need to unpack that, do we not? Because some might perceive this as a very arrogant statement on the part of Paul. But in reality, brothers and sisters, it would be hypocritical for Paul to say anything else. If he truly is their father in the faith, if he truly has delivered the truth unto them, if he truly has lived the Christian life before him, he has every right to say, Be ye followers of me. Yet still there is an important qualifier on this charge. Here's the qualifier on this charge. And the qualifier is found in verse 1 of chapter 11. So hold your place in chapter 4 and thumb over to verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul tells the Corinthians, Be ye followers of me, here's the qualifier, even as I also am of Christ. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Paul was not asking the Corinthians to blindly follow everything he ever did and everything he ever said without any hesitation. Paul was a man just like you and I, and he was certainly not above sinful behavior. But insofar as he followed Christ, he charged the Corinthians to follow him. Amen. 
Well, now we might ask, well, why not just say that, Paul? Why not just say, I beseech you, be ye followers of Christ? But if we ask that question, we're thinking as someone in 2022, not in 40 A.D. Remember the context of this epistle. Paul was writing to a first century Gentile audience that was coming directly out of ancient paganism. The Corinthians did not possess a completed Bible as you and I do. If Paul were to say, be ye followers of Christ, they were not able to open up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and study Christ and how He lived and what He taught. They were not able to read the Colossian epistle and study Christology. They were not able to study the epistle to the Ephesians and see how Christ is the head of the church. They had none of those resources. They did not have centuries of church history from which to model and study. What did they have? They had the writings of Paul. They had what other few writings that they had at that time. Remember, this is one of the earliest epistles that Paul wrote. He had not written Romans yet at this point. He had not written Ephesians. He had not written Colossians yet at this point. So they had the writings of Paul. What other few writings they may have had? Probably some of the Old Testament. And they had the example that Paul set for them while he personally labored in Corinth. Now, I'm not a big fan of most of the cliches that go around in evangelical Christianity today. And I think that it's regrettably sad that it seems as if most Christians get their theology from t-shirts and bumper stickers. But every now and then, one of those cliches is very accurate. And one of those cliches that is very accurate is this, you might just be the only Bible that someone will ever read. They may never open up the Scriptures. They may have never sat through a Gospel sermon. But if they have encountered you, they have witnessed an opportunity to see what it looks like to follow Christ. That should should sober you. That should humble you. Before Paul came and lived among them, they had absolutely no idea what it looked like to follow Christ. And so Paul tells them to follow Him as He follows Christ so that they may learn what the Christian life looks like as it is consistently lived out before them. In the previous verses, Paul mentions a few ways in which he followed Christ that all Christians are to imitate. Notice in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Being reviled, we bless. Imitate that. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Imitate that. Being defamed, we entreat. Imitate that. Becoming the filth of the world. Imitate that. Becoming the offscouring of all things. Imitate that. Imitate that because that is how Christ lived. Now, it might not be as needful for us to say something like that today. I don't have to tell you, follow me as I follow Christ. I can tell you, be ye followers of Christ, and I can show you in the Scriptures how Christ lives. So I I can take myself out of the equation. But yet the principle is true. I would urge all of you to be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. But brothers and sisters, when I do not follow Christ, do not follow me. How many cults have been started How many churches have gone awry? How many churches that perhaps had a good beginning? Perhaps they started off on the right foot, but there was a man who entered in to the preaching and teaching ministry in that church that thought just a little bit too highly of himself. And he began to implore the people to follow him whether he followed Christ or not. Well, I'm not 
comfortable with putting that kind of pressure on myself. Be ye followers of Christ. But if you do see someone who is following Christ, and you are able to glean from that, follow them as they follow Christ. Notice verse 17. Paul says, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son. For what cause, Paul? So that they might be reminded of how Paul lived and what Paul taught and be able to follow Paul as he followed Christ. Notice that Timothy is also called Paul's beloved son. It's the same phrase that he just addressed the Corinthians. He's saying that there's equality here amongst you. I'm not sending you a super spiritual Christian. I'm sending you one of my other beloved sons. Maybe he's a little bit older, but he's just my beloved son. Timothy is one who truly did follow Paul as Paul followed Christ. And what I find very striking about the end of verse 17, Paul says, He's going to bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. I want you to take note and underscore the consistency in Paul's Christian life and testimony. He did not behave one way when he was around one group and another way when he was around another group. He did not have one message for certain churches and another message for other churches. I have been at different fellowships and conferences and have had the privilege to preach there and have have heard preachers make the remark to me, oh, well, that was a wonderful message, but you couldn't preach that where I'm from. My response is simply that I don't want to preach there. Because I don't have a a certain message for one place and then change it and alter it at another place. I think it's one of the reasons why the Lord led us to plant from the ground up. And there are so many who, who will hop from church to church and pastors that will take a church for two or three years and then go to another church for two or three years and they have a an ability, whether it's a good ability or a bad ability, to kind of conform and mold to the audience and environment they're in. There's a sense in which you can go too far with that when you begin to sacrifice and compromise the truth for the sake of acceptance with the people. May we be like Paul. May we be consistent. May I ask you, can this be said of you? Is who we know you to be on Sunday who you are throughout the rest of the week? Or do you put on a facade when you're around Christian friends and Christian company and then go and indulge in the filth of this world with your unbelieving friends? To the men and women in this room who claim the name of Christ, God is calling you to live a mature and consistent Christian life so that those younger in the faith can observe the way you live and learn what it means to be like Jesus. And that does not just happen from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock on Sundays or from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock on Wednesdays, but that happens all the time. When you're tired and you're coming home from work and you just want to kick the dog and eat your food and go to bed, you are responsible to live as Jesus lived before your family. When you're stuck in traffic and you're running late and someone cuts you off, you are responsible to live as Jesus lived before the world. And to those of you here who are newer believers or who are new church members, which constitutes a majority of this congregation, 
Let me stress to you the importance of seeking out individuals in your life that you can follow as they follow Christ. Do not try to figure out how to live the Christian life on your own. That is why God has given you the church. That is why God has given you church history. Single out the godly men and women in your life and imitate their Christianity. Read the biographies of those used by God to do mighty things and mimic their godliness. Understand that the Christian life is not a one-man solo act, but it is meant to be lived out in the community atmosphere of fellow believers. This is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand. And this is what we still need to understand today. May God help us to be such men and such women and to find such men and such women. So Paul gives them a consequential charge and that is, follow me as I follow Christ. But then he speaks of a certain coming. A certain coming. And I'm not using the term certain as a specific, but a certain as a definite, a definite coming. Verse 18. Verse 18, Paul will now place his finger on the chief deception that was circulating in the Corinthian church. He says, now some are puffed up. Some are puffed up. Pay attention to the careful detail. This was not something that all the members were guilty of. It was a sin committed by some. However, in the preceding chapter, in chapter 5, Paul will explain how just a little bit of leaven ruins an entire lump. When sin is detected in the body, when deception is detected in the church, it must be addressed before it has the opportunity to permeate and spread. Oftentimes, pastors are criticized for making too much out of a little thing. But I can say to you that it is far easier to deal with a small problem in one or two people than a large problem in the whole congregation. And so Paul says, now some of you are puffed up. And what are they puffed up in thinking? To be puffed up simply means to be arrogant, to be high-minded, to, to think you have it figured out. They're puffed up because they think, verse 18, as though I would not come to you. See, what's happening here is that there are members in the body who are spreading the lie that Paul won't actually return again to the Corinthian church. It's the same people that have been saying, Paul is weak, Paul is beggarly, Paul is a fool, Paul needs to get with the times, Paul is old-fashioned, Paul is a stick in the mud, and Paul is just too intimidated to come back to our church. We have graduated beyond Paul. Those who oppose the ministry of Paul, those who infect the church with worldly wisdom at the expense of of the pure gospel, there are even those in the Corinthian church that are seeking to deny the apostleship of Paul. Again, think of the heartbrokenness that Paul experienced as their father in the faith. These are the same troublemaking beguilers that Paul has dealt with all throughout this section of 1 Corinthians. And when they introduce their 
new ideas, when they introduced their humanistic doctrines, there were no doubt some faithful members of the church who would rebut by saying, well, this isn't what Paul taught us when Paul was here. There's always that faithful remnant. And that faithful remnant would say, this is not how Paul instructed us to behave. But these false teachers would respond back by saying, well, what does Paul matter to us now? Don't you know that Paul left Corinth and Paul's not coming back? And so Paul includes in this letter the certainty of his plans to visit Corinth once more. And when he comes, he is going to set the record straight against those who are perverting the foundation that he had laid. He says in verse 19, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will. Here we see also the meek humility of Paul. Contrary to the lies of some in Corinth, Paul is coming to them, but only if the Lord wills. This is where we get our colloquial phrase today, Lord willing. How many of you speak that way? I'll see you Saturday, Lord willing. Paul was a man that surrendered his life and surrendered his ministry to the absolute sovereignty of God. He was determined to come to Corinth but nothing short of divine providence could prevent him. I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. And he goes on to tell the Corinthians exactly what he will do when he arrives. Again, think of this. Think of this in terms of of a father speaking to his children. It is almost as if Paul is saying, wait until your dad gets home. And he says... And I will know, in the latter half of verse 19, I will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. When Paul comes to town, he will find out who is really striving to live the Christian life as he is so modeled, and who is just blowing smoke. He will cut right through the hot air of the big talkers that would so love to draw away the Corinthians after worldly wisdom. And Paul will test his opposition not by what they say, but by what they do. So many run their mouths, but few have the Christian life and character to back it up. And often those who talk the most do the least. Those who brag about how spiritual they are are usually the least spiritual. Those who boast in how well-read they are are usually the most ignorant. And those who claim to be so advanced in the Christian life are in reality the most feeble and immature. This has been a common theme throughout these opening chapters and Paul is here telling us that he knows what's going on in Corinth and he intends to come and personally deal with it. Why does he say this? That he's going to know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. Why is he focused on the power? What they're, what they're doing? Well, he explains in verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Those who masquerade their worldly lifestyles by boasting of their pseudo-Christian achievements reveal that they are outside the realms of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom of God here refers to the inward rule that God has upon the hearts and lives of His people. The kingdom of God is the reality of God's present reign within the redeemed. 
We find here that the kingdom of God is not manifested in how much you run your mouth, but in how your life has been changed, and how your conduct has been altered, and how your desires have been sanctified, as your heart is now ruled and constrained by the saving love of Christ. As Charles Hodge says, true religion does not consist in external observances, but inward graces. It is not about checking boxes. It is not about acting the part. It is about truly being transformed by the grace of God. And the power that distinguishes the kingdom of God is the power of God's grace radically changing an individual into the likeness of Christ. To have the power of God in your life is to have the divine enablement to live by what is written. And when he comes to Corinth, this is how Paul will know whether one truly belongs to Christ's kingdom or not. Fancy rhetoric, thrilling oration, dynamic personality is all meaningless if it is not backed up by the life of someone who has encountered the grace of God. So Paul is putting the church on notice. When he comes, he will deal with this great problem plaguing the church And it's not because He is harsh. It is not because He is abrasive. But because He loves His children. And He will separate true, godly Christians from mere imposters. Paul concludes this chapter. He ends this chapter with a concluding choice. A concluding choice in verse 21. After warning of His certain coming, He ends this chapter with this concluding choice. And he says in verse 21, What will ye? What will ye? In other words, what's it going to be? What are you going to choose? What is your decision? True preaching and true pastoring is putting your people at a crossroads every week, every sermon, every lesson, every exposition, and forcing them to decide which way they are to go. Can we not hear the, the parental language of a concerned father in this question. Paul has laid out his intentions. He has warned of the dangers of persisting in disobedience. He has has instructed them how they are to correct their errors. And now he places them at this point of decision. And he even is gracious enough to give them space to decide. Make no mistake about it. They must choose which way they will go. Here are the two options. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod? Paul is, again, speaking metaphorically. The rod, of course, is an instrument of discipline. It is one that is used to inflict pain in order to correct misbehavior. Paul is emphatically saying that if the Corinthians do not repent of their sinful entanglements and vain philosophies and worldly wisdom. And if these deceivers, these Corinthian deceivers, do not cease to pervert the church in Corinth, He is going to do whatever it takes to get the church back on the biblical path, even if that means exercising church discipline. That is how serious the situation is at Corinth. But though this tough course of action is an option for Paul, it is not what he prefers. No, Paul would much rather come as the framers, as he frames the the latter half of this question. 
He says, what will you? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? See, no good father gets any sort of sadistic enjoyment out of administering discipline to his children. He would much rather be peaceable and gentle towards them. And every father would testify, well, if my children would simply never disobey again, I would never have to discipline them again. And so Paul is saying, if you would repent of this, if you would correct it, I don't have to come to you with a rod. However, when they persist in sin and disobedience, the father has no choice but to deal with it. This is the position of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Corinthians concerning his upcoming visit. But what do we make of this concluding choice? Obviously, the Apostle Paul has been dead for 2,000 years. And there's no apostle that will ever come to this church. But the Spirit of God still speaks through his writings. This is not just for the Corinthians. No, this is for us. And it is more relevant today than tomorrow's newspaper. And there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, in which we shall undergo a much more intense trial. The Lord Himself shall return and shall test us in a manner that is far more severe than the discernment of Paul in Corinth. The Lord is infallible in His judgment and He knows who resides in His kingdom and who merely makes a profession with their mouths. The Lord knows if you live a consistent life in accordance with His Word. The Lord knows if you are diligent in your strivings after righteousness. The Lord knows if you are just putting on a show before the church. The Lord knows if your Christianity is all talk and no actions. The Lord knows if you are devoted to the principles of Holy Writ or if you are starving after the ideologies and superstitions that this world has to offer. This church, brothers and sisters, and every other church, and all of us here tonight, are on a collision course with the judgment seat of Christ. And if you are an imposter, if you are a false convert who has deceived your way into the ranks of the church on account of a good talk, and mere external actions, but saving grace has never taken root in your heart, you will be found out on that day. So I ask you, as Paul asked the Corinthians, when you stand before Jesus on the final day, will He embrace you into eternal love and communion? As your testimony is proven true, or will He cast you out with a divine rod and condemn you as a fraud? If you are unsure of your answer to that question, I can only say to you, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ and cast yourself upon Him and Him alone. Beg Him to save you from your pride. Beg Him to save you from the vanity of your empty profession. And trust in His finished work alone as your perfect and spotless righteousness before a holy God. Then, and only then, walk according to the grace that redeemed you and follow Christ, not in word, but in power. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us tonight.